The following is a rebroadcast of Stratford University's Tech Talk. To hear Tech Talk live, tune in Saturday mornings at 9. You can find us on the radio on 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, and 1077 FM HD2. Or you can listen live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell. Tech Talk Radio. It's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Andrew Mitchell. And it's been lots of interesting things in technology as always. The big discussion now is about changing our H-1B visa program so we can get more international uh, students in our tech sector. We've got a huge labor shortage in technology and it's crippling the economy. This week we're gonna feature Claude Elwood Shannon. He was a mathematician and known as, best known as, father of information theory. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email from John in Baltimore. Uh, Dear Tech Talk, the hard drive on my five-year-old laptop died, and I bought a new 480-gigabyte solid-state drive to replace it. Since I've got to reinstall the operating system, I'm seriously considering installing Linux instead of Windows. The only thing I use this laptop for is keeping up with several of my favorite websites, so I'm not really worried about running any Windows programs. I'd really like to install a version that kind of looks and feels like Windows. Can you tell me which version that might be, John in, John from Baltimore, Maryland? Well, John, there are several Linux distros that look and work a lot like Windows. Linux Mint with the Cinnamon desktop has gotten rave reviews from the Linux community. Linux Mint is very fast. It's a full-featured Linux distro that's based upon Ubuntu. Uh, Doc, I got to stop you right there. What is a distro? Distro, it's a distribution. Ah. Yeah. So if, whenever they're uh, whenever they're distributing uh, different versions of open source software, each one is called a distribution of that software, and they short for distro. <laughs> the short is distro. Now, now unlike Ubuntu's Unity desktop. Mint's Cinnamon desktop has a lot in common with Windows. It's got a menu button in the exact place where the Windows Start button and it does virtually the same thing. It's got, it has a desk on the desktop. There's a computer icon for, act, for accessing the disk drives and files and file folders. There's also a trash can just like the Windows recycle bin. There's a quick launch bar that allows you to launch programs with a single mouse click. And it's in the same place as the quick launch bar in Windows. Now, you can go to the Linux Mint website and check out the details. If you like what you see, click the download link and you'll download the ISO file. That's basically a file that you burn to a blank CD. And then what you'll do is you'll, you'll basically uh, boot up on that CD. And, uh, and then it, you'll go through the install sequence. 
You can put the, the ISO either on a DVD or on a flash drive. You just got to set your computer up to boot up on that drive on that particular drive first uh, before going to the uh, the internal drive internal drive. Now, now there's really uh, you, you can also uh, put Linux Mint through its paces right from a live CD on the flash drive. You could actually run it right from the flash drive if you wanted just to see uh, to see whether you like it rather than actually installing it. So you want to go to just if you want if you like it like what you see you can you can basically find this by going just just search for Linux Mint with Cinnamon Desktop it'll take you right to the download page. We got an email from Brian in Pittsburgh. Uh, Dear Tech Talk, someone stole my daughter's picture from my Facebook photos and they're using it as their profile pic. She's only 14 and I don't like it. Can you tell me how to report a stolen picture to Facebook? Brian in Pittsburgh, Kansas. Well, Brian, Facebook is full of content thieves. Everything is everything is stolen. It's subject to being stolen on Facebook. Fortunately, reporting a stolen photo is easy. And Facebook actually does take action if they can be convinced that the content is truly stolen and that you own it. Now you follow the steps below for the device for the for whatever you're using. If you're using the uh, the app on your mobile phone, for instance, scroll to the stolen photo on the person's timeline or in their photo section. Tap on the photo to open it in its own page. Then tap the icons in the upper right corner of the screen. It looks like three vertical dots. Find support on that drop-down menu and report the photo and you'll follow the prompts. Now, now the actions are similar if you use the web browser. You basically want to bring the photo up in, its separate, uh, in, in a separate tab. Now, hopefully Facebook is going to review your comments and remove it from the thief's account. And they actually have a pretty good reputation for doing this. Now, but be aware, Facebook might request additional information so that you can giving you a chance to prove and to document that that photo was really owned by you and that it's not the property of the thief. Now, how we did Brian a, actually find out that, uh, you know, how, did he, how do you find somebody's photo out there in a world full of profiles? Well, uh, with all this uh, face recognition stuff. <laughs> so, uh, he, yeah, you'd have to do that first. So if you want to know if any of your images are stolen, you'd have to actually search the Internet for that image th- using the facial recognition technology? You, you would you would have to do that, yeah. and actually, there are websites that will search for photos. If you want to know whether a photo's been stolen, I'd, maybe I should cover that next week in, in website of the week. Yeah, there you can basically just put a link to your photo, and it will search the web to see if anybody's stolen that photo. Um, yeah, but this is this is actually a problem on on Facebook in particular. That's why a lot of uh, people that have family Facebook accounts make their family Facebook groups private so only the fam- family members can see the pictures. And I actually, I do recommend that so that you don't have people just randomly stealing pictures and using them for their own devices. We got an email from Hawk and Bowie. Dear Doc and Andrew, I recently dropped my old Yahoo account and, uh, and, and I switched to Gmail. But every time I load a program with the Chrome browser, my old email address keeps popping up. Like if, if I, 
if, if I want to log into a website, it remembers my old email address and it keeps popping up. I prefer not having that old email address showing up. How can I fix this hawk and buoy? Well, uh, Chrome responds to your old email address because it's stored in its autofill form data. Browser cache. All you need to do is clear out the obsolete autofill form data and your, your old Yahoo email address will be, um, will be gone. Now, you can follow all the instructions for doing this. It's pretty clear. You want to launch, launch the Chrome browser, and then you hit Control-H. Press the Control button and the H button, and a little screen will come up. And on the left column of that uh, window that pops up, you have something called Clear Browser Data Link. Click on that, and you uncheck and you check all the things that you want to have cleared. And then you click on the Advanced tab, and there are more things that you can choose to have cleared and you just check whatever you want to have cleared. Uh, check the box beside auto form data so that it's actually going to, you know, look in that area. And then click the time range for all time. So it's going to, anytime you put it in, it will grab it. And once you've done that, you just click the clear data button and your old email address should not be there. But just remember, this is going to clear all the old autofill data so there may be some other websites where you would like to keep the username and password, and those will also be cleared. So uh, just be mindful. You may want to uh, grab all those passwords before you clear everything, and then you start out from scratch. We got an email from Doug in Kansas. Dear Doc and Andrew, what is your take on public Wi-Fi? Is it still dangerous as some people maintain? I cannot imagine somebody hacking me at Starbucks, what do you think, Doug in Kansas? Well, actually, I'm, I'm cautious of Wi-Fi when I'm traveling internationally, but Wi-Fi is safer and more private than it used to be because now most of the websites use HTTPS, which is secure socket layer, for the login credentials. So most of the websites are now supporting HTTPS for login. So actually, your passwords are protected. It's much, much better than it, than it used to be. Uh, in, fact, uh, uh, in fact, even the Electronic Frontier Foundation recently declared that Wi-Fi is much safer than it used to be. Now, there's still some risks, like uh, the, what I call the evil twin, the malicious Wi-Fi hotspot that could perform a, a middle, uh, man-in-the-middle attack, somebody that creates a free Wi-Fi hotspot, and then they're connected to the Internet, in some other way, and when you connect to their hotspot, they can grab all the data because once it gets to the hotspot, it's de-encrypted. So they could grab all your data in a man-in-the-middle attack. That's why I am very careful about any Wi-Fi hotspots that I would connect to, say, at, a, at an airport. And now, when I travel internationally, I always use a VPN because I just I just think, especially, uh, especially uh, upscale hotels, are really ripe for people trying to hack into the Wi-Fi because they, they, they want to target the guests of those hotels. We got an email from Doug in Kilmarnock. Dear uh, Tech Talk, I want to explore uh, uh, some new interests relating to web design and photography, and I need some advice. Uh, you know, I want to set up a blog. How does one register a URL? Does it cost anything? How do you start a blog? Thanks. Doug and Kilmarnock. Well, Doug, uh, first of all, you have to get a domain name that you can pick. 
uh, I mean, GoDaddy.com is one of the cheapest registries. You you can go to. There are a lot of many. There are many registries. You you can go to GoDaddy.com and you can select a domain name. They'll let you uh, search for a domain name to see whether it's open, and then if you uh, if you like it. If it's available, you can get it for like $35 a year. Maybe if you get multiple years, you can, you can get a lower rate. Now, what I would advise you, though, is once you've searched for a name, people can detect that you've searched for that name. And frequently there are individuals that will grab that domain name and try to charge you money for it. I know somebody that was, uh, that, that was setting up a blog. They searched for the name. They waited a few days to go back and check. The name was taken, and the people wanted five hundred dollars for the domain name. Here's so, the thing, though: how do they find? How do they intercept that uh, search? You know that you did. That seems I weird, don't, right? I don't know. Could be an inside job. I'm, I'm not really certain how they intercept it. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> they 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 could hack into the hack into the website, but I've seen this happen twice for people that that were getting domain names. Now, what happens if you just ignore them, they, they, they won't want to pay a second year for the domain name. So if you just wait them out, they usually will release it after a year. So that, but, yeah, that, that assumes you've got a year <laughs> that you want to wait with all the content that you're willing to share with the world. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. so, so this, I, uh, this has happened to two people who I knew. So I'm, I'm thinking it's... Uh, um, uh, somebody has hacked into these domain registries, or maybe it's an inside job, and it's just a it's just a side hustle to to do this thing. Because once you once you search, uh, it's there now. Um, but I I was wondering that myself how how they're getting this information so quickly because they, they were getting it within a day. Wow. So we got uh, now. So you get your domain name, uh, Doug, and and you you pick the one you want and. Then you can decide. Um, you, you've got a choice on uh, on 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 blogs. So if you have your own domain name, you you basically need blog software. So you can get WordPress, and uh, this is what I I recommend WordPress. It's it's actually free, uh, and you can set up a WordPress uh, blog. Uh, you know, on your at your domain name address, and uh, and then what. Uh, what WordPress does, they have extensions like they've got. If you want to have an automatic backup, if you want to have additional features, they charge you for those additional features. But the core functions of the blog are free on, on WordPress. Now, if you want to just get into it like baby steps and you want to you don't even want to get a domain name, you just want to try it out. There are basically free blogging services like a blogspot.com and what you can do there, like you can get my, but your web address is at blogspot.com. So it's, it might be like my great blog, which is the name of your blog, dot blogspot.com. And then you can set up the blog on blogspot.com. And that's free, but of course there are ads there. So there would be ads delivered to your blog. But this would let you kind of get started, not worry about the domain name and just start you know, developing your blog. But if you if you really decide to make it a major pastime, I'd get your own domain name, your own WordPress, and run your own blog. 
Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. Yeah, and stick around right now. We're about to meet the man who came up with the theory of everything digital we do nowadays. I mean everything, CDs, DVDs, streaming video, everything you ever do on a computer, phone call, every kind of communication, everything digital. He thought of these things back in 1938. took like 50 years to actually make it a reality. But we'll find out next, the father of information technology. We meet him on Profiles in IT on Tech Talk Radio. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Claude Elwood Shannon. Claude Shannon was a mathematician, an electronic engineer, and a cryptographer known, best known as, the father of information theory. Now, Claude Shannon was born April 30th, 1916 in Petoskey, Michigan. His first 16 years were spent in Gaylord, Michigan, where he attended public school and he gra- graduating from Gaylord High School in 1932. Now, he was always tinkering as a youth. He constructed models of planes. He built a radio-controlled motorboat. He built a barbed wire telegraph system to his friend's house a half mile away. And he used a couple of strands of bob wire as the, as the communication channel to get to his friend. Uh, his hero was Thomas Edison. And he later discovered that Thomas Edison was a distant cousin. Now, in 1932, he entered the University of Michigan, uh, and while he was at the University of Michigan, he learned about George Boole. Now, George Boole had invented logic that was based on zeros and ones, so-called Boolean algebra, and he learned about George Boole and his logic based on zeros and ones, and uh, became quite interested in that, uh, in, in, using that tech, in using that technology. Now, while he was at MIT, 
Uh, he graduated with a bachelor's degree in double E in mathematics from University of Maryland. And then he enrolled in the electrical engineering program, the graduate program to, at, NI, at MIT. And he started working on Vannevar's Bush's uh, differential analyzer, which was an early analog computer. Now, <clears throat> while he was studying this analog computer and all the complicated ad hoc circuits in the analyzer, Shannon thought, you know, there's got to be an easier way to design a computer instead of using all these analog complicated circuits. And he started working on switching circuits based on Boole's concepts, uh, where you just put together different switches in different configurations and you could do calculations, assuming that you have a digital signal where either zero or one. Uh, Shannon proved that his switching circuits could be used to simplify the arrangement of electromagnetic relays when used for call routing switches. Now, he wrote his master's degree thesis based on this. It was a symbolic analysis of relay and switching circuits. He wrote that in 1937, and uh, the paper was published in 1938. This was... Uh, this, and now, if you remember, the uh, the transistor had not been invented yet. Transistor wasn't invented till the 40s. So this predated the transistor, and he was dealing with relays. But the concepts in this paper were actually used to design the integrated circuits some 50 years later. Next, he uh, you know he went on to prove that uh, all these uh, that this Boolean algebra could solve any problem of any type of logic problem, any type of computational problem that you would have. In fact, in this, uh, in the last chapter of his uh, of his um, of his uh, paper, he he presented diagrams of several circuits, including a four-bit adder address. Shannon's work became the foundation of practical digital circuit design when it was ultimately widely known after World War II. Now, here's the thing. Not just widely known, Doc, but the most influential master's thesis ever written, and that is the opinion of the late Robert McAleese, who was a professor of electrical engineering at Caltech. He created the field of digital logic. Now, if you think about that, that sounds like a very simple thing to say now, but what does logic have to do with digital? Logic is uh, reasoning correctly from premises. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a subject in philosophy. He showed that and, or, and not, the simple connectives from theoretical Boolean algebra, could be used to build electronic circuits, which, which led in no small part to the uh, invention of the computer. People said it's the most influential master's thesis in history, which is certainly true, but it understates the point. If he'd done nothing else, he'd still be famous for inventing digital logic. Yeah, and of course, he didn't stop at a master's degree, did he, Doc? No, he did not. And by the way, he wrote that paper when he was only 21. Yeah, that's the other thing. You know, and later in life, he said, actually, he thinks all mathematicians do their best work when they're young. That way, He generalized that. He said, well, actually, I think everybody's like that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think there's a lot, uh, a lot to be said for that. Now, he went on to MIT to get his, uh, get his PhD. Uh, he, he then applied this... Because his professor, uh, uh, Dr. Bush, wanted him to broaden his horizon. So he says, why don't you apply this digital logic to genetics to see what you could predict there? So we applied the digital logic to genetic predictions. And uh, because he, 
he was a generalist and his advisor did not believe in people being too specialized. And so he, he made some, uh, some groundbreaking discoveries in genetics, applying the same Boolean, Boolean algebra logic. Now, he, uh, he became a, a 1940, uh, after he got his PhD, he became a fellow at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. That's where, uh, where Einstein uh, was also teaching, by the way. Uh, what, one time, Shannon said he was giving a lecture there at, the, at, at school, and Einstein walked in the back of the classroom, and he sat in the back chair, and he whispered something to one of the students. So after the, uh, after I, and then Einstein got up and left. So after, I, after Einstein left, he asked the student, what did Einstein say about my lecture? And he said, well, sir, he wanted to know where tea was being served. <laughs> what a European guy. He needs, he needs his tea. I'm sure he wasn't he, drinking nearly as much coffee as tea, that Einstein. Exactly. He, he, well, he had to have tea every afternoon. Yeah. Now, Shannon joined Bell Labs to work on fire control systems and cryptography during World War II. This was during the, the Blitzkrieg when, when the Germans were bombing uh, London and England. And, uh, and so he started working on digital design of fire control systems during World War II and cryptography. He, they brought him in to use his mathematical prowess to design encrypted communication networks. He, his algorithm was used to uh, encrypt the uh, the messages between uh, between Roosevelt and uh, and and Eisenhower during the war. So this was our highest level of uh, of encrypted channel, and he designed the cryptography for that. But he didn't get credit for it for many years later because it was all well classified. In September 1945. He prepared a classified memorandum for Bell Labs entitled The Mathematical Theory of Cryptography, which was a groundbreaking paper, but it was classified. In 1948, he published a two-part paper, A Mathematical Theory of Communication, which formed the basis of information theory. Now, what Shannon did, this back when he worked on communication the theory of communication, he believed that we needed digital communication. If you remember, Bell Labs back then, they just made telephone systems. It was all analog. And so they, what they would have to do, they would have to, you know, send an analog signal down a wire, then the signal degrades because of uh, loss. And then when it degrades to a certain point, they amplify the signal and they send it another distance, another segment. Well, eventually... The problem is every time you amplify the signal, you amplify the noise. And after you've been multiple stages of amplification, pretty soon the noise is as big as the signal and you, you don't have a useful signal. Doctor, so, are you old enough to remember what it was like to get an overseas call? I mean, you'd have to yell. You'd have to yell into your telephone. That's exactly right. <laughs> so, so what he did, he said, look, he said, we should use digital, digital signals for, uh, for our long-distance communication. So now this was heresy because they had a bunch of analog engineers and this guy would say, no, we have to go digital. And this, of course, was still based on the work that he had done 10 years earlier, really. And he'd been thinking about digital communication, actually, for, for 10 years since he invented the, the concepts behind the computer. Because, you see, if you have digital communication, 
first of all, you, you, you take the analog signal, you sample it, say, at 128 kilobits per second, uh, which was a typical sampling rate for an audio signal. And then what you do, you sample it, and then each sample you digitize to maybe 16 bits. And then you can convert then an analog signal to a digital signal, which is, which is really a sampled analog data stream. Now, here's the beauty of it. Once you convert it to digital, you just have zeros and ones. So you send the signal down the wire, and, and the ones, which are high voltage, gradually become less and less and less. And when the signal degrades to a certain point, you regenerate it. So you say you, you make all the ones absolutely one again and all the zeros absolutely zero again. So you can regenerate the signal with zero noise. And you can keep going through as many regenerators as you want, and the digital signal will work perfectly. So he convinced Bell Labs to dump all analog communication and go with digital signal. And I mean, and he was like, he was like fighting the tide, but he did it. And, and he, and he came up with a theory where he could predict the channel capacity. If you have a certain bandwidth, a certain number of frequencies available, he had a very simple formula to predict the maximum amount of information you could pass through that channel, given the bandwidth of the channel and the signal to noise ratio within the channel. And that became the Shannon limit. So he developed the theoretical underpinnings for digital communication across the board. And that, that, that's now used everywhere. I mean, Shannon's students are the people that start a Qualcomm, for instance. These principles are used for, for cell phones, for, for, all, for the internet. Everything is now digital communication. And his digital storage methods that he developed back 10 years earlier were used for storing digital information on CDs, on hard drives. He basically single-handedly invented the whole digital, uh, digital theoretical system. Uh, he did it, uh, and despite the impact of, uh, of Shannon's work, he never received the Nobel Prize because there is no Nobel Prize for mathematics. I did not so, know that. I did not ever think about that. Okay. So he 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 should have won a Nobel Prize for all of the the impact that he had. But it took, I mean, it took almost fifty years for the for the full fruition of all of his work to come about, and it took almost forty to fifty years before engineers could develop uh, noise cancellation circuits that that could actually communicate near the Shannon limit. That became a goal for all engineering. He's he set the pace so they knew they knew how fast they could they could communicate in a channel and they they targeted that. So they eventually Japan eventually created a Kyoto Award and he won the first Kyoto Award. So people did recognize it, that he was really quite uh, quite uh, uh, quite accomplished. Well, to, be, to, to be fair to him and to the Nobel Committee, I mean there is a prize for science, but the thing is he wrote these things and thought of these things so far in advance of us seeing them, you know, applied in practice that in a sense, you know, time had sort of lost track maybe. Many people had lost track of where these ideas actually came from in the first place. That's right. He, he, he just changed the thinking of the entire field. And so his became the foundational concepts upon which maybe Nobel Prize winning things were developed. Now, he, he basically, uh, you know, he, he basically figured out how to, 
how to uh, how to describe a message in terms of disorder within the within the the message itself. He called it entropy, information entropy, and then he could make mathematical predictions about the the rate that information could be could be transmitted. In 1948, he published the communication theory of secrecy systems, which was a declassification of his work on cryptography that he did during the war. And that's when he was finally established as a leader in the field of cryptography. Now, he's he, of course, is the guy that uh, introduced sampling theory, which is how you can convert a continuous wave signal into discrete uh, digital samples. He uh, after the breakup of Bell Labs, uh, he remained with AT&T uh, quite some time as a consultant. He, he went on to become a, uh, an endowed chair at MIT in 1956. Now, Shannon's academic pursuits uh, were, were one thing, but he was interested in all kinds of things. He, he was interested in juggling, in unicycling, in chess. He invented many devices like a Roman numeral computer. He had juggling machines where it would be these little men that were actually juggling real things. He would invent them. He made a flame-throwing trumpet. He built a device that could uh, solve a Rubik's Cube. You know, here's one uh, example. I mean, I know about the unicycling. He made dozens, I think, um, of models of unicycles. And one of his ideas was how small can a unicycle be and still be rideable? Because I guess it, it operates you know, on the idea of higher center of gravity when you're actually riding on it so you can run on a unicycle. And so that's the kind of thing he, he thought about, too. That, and as he, by his own admission, said, mostly useless stuff is how he put it. Yeah, but but that was part of his psychic. I mean, in his in his in his uh, uh, den at home, he had this false wall that you push on one side and it flips around. Uh, it doesn't go anywhere. He just wanted to engineer that. Oh, and what was uh, that thing with the hand? The hand that reaches out. What does it do? Oh yeah, he he built this one box where the box is closed, and then you pull this switch that says open. A hand comes out of the box, goes over to the switch and switches it back to close, and then goes back in the box. <laughs> That's the ultimate useless device. Yeah, really it is. Now, he teamed up with an MIT mathematician, Ed Thorpe, and they made the first wearable computer, which they wore in Las Vegas. And they used it to increase their odds in roulette and blackjack. Whoa, they so, didn't get thrown out? Did they ever get caught? My goodness. Yeah, he, he he was the guy who actually, you know, pioneered the theory, you know, uh, you know, be, be, you know, behind all this count card. He he worked with the guy that wrote the book on count card counting to sort of shift the odds in blackjack. Oh, then he applied the game theory that he was using for uh, for uh, for blackjack to the stock market, and he made a lot of money in the stock stock market. His techniques are used by Warren Buffett, by the way. To oh, invest in I didn't stocks. know about that. Okay. Yeah. So part of his psyche was always to be working on a wide range of things and only be driven by his curiosity. He wasn't motivated by money, by fame. He actually didn't care about this Nobel Prize deal. Uh, other people were worried about it. He wasn't. He was only motivated by his curiosity in trying to solve difficult problems. He died in uh, 2001 at, at age 84 suffering from Alzheimer's disease. So his last few years were not, were not 
so happy. In fact, when they when Bell Labs built uh, when they they named the lab in his honor the Shannon Labs, he could not even attend the event because he was too sick at that time. So there you go. All everything you want to know about Claude Shannon, the father of information theory, and a man who made who accelerated the transition to digital electronics probably accelerated it by 20 years. Yeah, so pour yourself a coffee, pull up a chair as we join Doc in the faculty lounge next to say a few more things about what motivated the father of information theory. Tech Talk Radio continues. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for observations from the faculty lounge. Now let's delve into the mind of Claude Shannon a genius who was incredibly insightful in predicting where technology would be going. Now, these are a few of the basic principles that he followed in his, uh, in his life of research. He always focused on the big picture first. The details would come later. In his mathematical work, Sh- Shannon had the quality of leaping right to the central insight and leaving the details to be filled in later. As he once explained it, I think I'm more visual and symbolic. I try to get a feeling of what's going on. The equations come later. It's as if he saw solutions before he could explain why they were correct. Now, many mathematicians criticized him because they said he wasn't rigorous. But actually, his insights were almost always correct. And eventually, he got the equations to back them up. Uh, he was very careful not to over-specialize. In, in technology, there's this tendency where people learn more and more and more about less and less and less until they know everything about nothing. He said, I do not want that to happen to me. He wanted to always be interested in this thing, and his thesis advisor really advised him in that. After he had invented digital computing with his master's thesis, his advisor said, look, why don't you apply that to genetics? A completely different field. You would have to learn it from scratch, but that allowed him to sort of 
broaden his focus to become more of a liberal arts person in technology. And if you look at his master's thesis, he combined Boolean logic with computer building. Now, these are two subjects that normally would be totally unrelated, but because he was able to look at different unrelated things, he was able to link them and create something new. His information theory drew on his fascination with code breaking, which he'd always been fascinated with, with language and literature. He always felt that working on three ideas simultaneously was, was more productive than sticking to just one idea. Doug, now, have you ever his, found that, I mean, in your own life, thinking about, uh, you know, the, like, is it actually good to stop focusing on one thing? Have you found that useful, too, in thinking through problems? It's extremely useful because uh, most most of my patents came when I would when I would apply uh, something from one field to another, and you and you 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 link you link ideas up. So maybe it's a common idea in one field, but it's not uh, related to another. So actually, uh, linking fields together and making connections across broadly separated fields frequently leads to really creative ideas. I think he's right on target there. Now, he kept his mind agile by working on all kinds of hobbies. He had jazz music, unicycling, juggling, chess, gadgetry, amateur poetry. He felt that all of this stuff, which was just like playing around, whether it produced something useful or not, like the box that closed itself, he he felt that this kept his mind always asking questions, asking the right questions, and it kept his mind agile, and that was sort of the key to his creativity. Now, he was very focused and deliberate. The third principle that he followed was consider the content of your friendships. Now, Shannon was never one to get caught up in jockeying for status or playing office politics or trying to win over critics. His pleasure came with problem solving, and that was worth more than anything to him. So he assembled an eclectic group of friends that also were interested in problem solving, and they would just sit around talking about these problems. He did not want to have friendships that weren't focused in that direction. So he was very deliberate in who he chose as a friend because he wanted his the friends to bring out the best in him. The fourth principle that Claude Shannon had was fancy or complicated is easy. Simple is hard. Now, Shannon was not impressed by colleagues who wrote some detailed theory that was super complex. What impressed him was radical simplicity. According to Shannon, almost every problem that you come, is come against is befuddled with all kinds of extraneous data of one type or another. If you can bring this problem down to the main issue, you can usually see more clearly what the solution is. You know, that so, is an insight, Doc, for everything in life. Don't you think fancy is easy, simple is hard. And this idea of right. stripping things down and getting at the root of the one thing that matters in a situation. I think I love that insight. That's right. I mean, that, that's what Steve, Steve Jobs did. You know, he would he would, when he was designing things, he would look at the simple elements that the user wanted and strip away all the, all the complexity and all the extra things. Uh, and he would only work on a few projects there at Apple. So 
there were many of this uh, of, of Shannon's students. They, they would come to him with this great idea for a thesis, and and Shannon would say, "Well, you know, can you get rid of that assumption and that assumption and that assumption?" And the student would say, "Yeah, but I get rid of all that stuff. What's left?" And then usually the student looks at what's left, and he gets this eureka moment. It's, "Oh, now I see the problem." Just by stripping away the the, the things, and and many students. Uh, benefited from Shannon's insistence of simplicity. Now, the the last thing is is motivation. As you motivate yourself going through life, so don't look for some inspiration. Don't think. Don't don't sit down, look out the window, and think some big inspiration is going to come to hit you over the head. He said, look for irritation. Now, Shannon believed an idea might come from a good conversation, tinkering in a workshop, or any kind of aimless play that he indulged in for much of his life. But above all, it came from doing stuff, not sitting around waiting. Now, Shannon was always seeking what he called a slight irritation. It's like when things don't look quite right. He loved constructive dissatisfaction. You know, like he looked at that analog computer, he says, you know, that's not right. These, these circuits are too complicated. Yeah, I, or, I don't or like that. the way we did telephone communications. He says, why is there so much noise? Why is this not working better? You know, right. that, that's and a so simple he, everyday this irritation. This dissatisfaction is what drove him yeah. to invent stuff. Yeah. So those are the, those are the four principles, five principles, which are actually pretty good. Big picture first, details later. Don't over-specialize. Consider the content of your friendships. Fancy is easy, simple is hard. Don't look for inspiration, look for irritation. And there you go, everything you'd want to know about Claude Shannon and the way he thinks. So we've got just enough time to take one more break, and then uh, we'll break down uh, some other things that bother us and uh, see what the solutions might be. Tech Talk Radio continues. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. Let's talk about the H-1B visa and the need for reform. And this reform of the visa program is critical to the U.S. talent shortage. 
H-1B visas are visas that are basically work permits that allow individuals that have the skills that are missing in this country to get permission to work in this country. And typically, people that get an H-1B visa ultimately, frequently get uh, U.S. citizenship. They're here long enough to ultimately qualify for U.S. citizenship. Now, boosting the immigration of high-skills workers is the best approach to dealing with our severe talent shortage that's affecting American employers. Uh, one in four American employers is struggling to fill empty positions due to a lack of available talent. Nearly two-thirds of employers say workforce skills don't align with their firm's needs. And if the U.S. doesn't narrow the gap, productivity could be halved. The solution, update H-1B visa guidelines, which haven't changed for 14 years. Now, the tech sector's long relied on H-1B visas to hire high-skilled workers for roles it can't fill with Americans because of a shortage of STEM workers. Those in support of the program say it's critical to bring creativity and innovation to Silicon Valley. Opponents say that increased immigration uh, will take jobs away from Americans. <coughs> Critics also say that companies take advantage of H-1B programs to hire immigrants at lower than market rates. But here's the reality of the program, of the situation. We need immigrants in this country to survive. The average age in America is 45. We're not producing enough children to actually fill the labor requirements for the future. Now, if you look at, uh, say, northern India, their average age is 22. They're going to produce 20 million excess workers for the employment market over the next uh, 15 years. And actually, we need immigrants in order to continue to grow. You know, that's now, that's more obvious than ever, by the way, because right now we see in general there's a labor shortage across the board in the country. And we're at a four percent, you know, a four and a half percent in uh, unemployment rate. But finding specialized workers that have and especially in this case, specialized is an understatement. I mean, people with master's degrees and doctorates in specific technical um, and scientific, uh, you know, specializations. That's really hard to find. That's right. And so the uh, where this uh, excess workers for the uh, job market come from, what they call the demographic bonus. Uh, uh, you know, I, I read a book, Reimagining India by uh, Neil Akani, and he uh, he said the demographic bonus comes whenever you have uh, a uh, basically a, an agricultural community. You end up with, uh, on average, every married woman has around six point five children in order to support the farm. And then what happens, healthcare comes in. And then the babies don't die at childbirth. So then the population starts shooting through the roof. Then education comes in. And as soon as the females are educated, they say, to heck with 6.5 babies. <laughs> and the population drops dramatically. So you have this spike in population of unencumbered youth because they're not having big families and those unencumbered youth can be educated and boost the economy or they can cause mischief. In southern India, they went through a demographic bonus over the last uh, uh, 20 years, 15 to 20 years, and that's what fueled the IT boom in southern India. 
After they went through that demographic bonus, the average age in southern India was 35. The average age in India overall is 26. The average age in northern India is 22. They're about ready to enter a demographic bonus phase, and that's where the 20 million workers are going to come from. And the U.S. really needs to find a way to welcome these workers. Uh, the H-1B visa program was really successful in that you'd have you know, individuals coming to the country. They would go to uh, institutions of higher education. They would get a degree. They could work in the field in what they call optional practical training. They could have authorization to work in the field for between one to three years, depending on their program. And then if they wanted to stay in the country, they could apply for an H-1B visa, continue working at the prevailing rate of their field, and maybe four or five years later apply for citizenship. So it was a pathway to attract high-skilled workers that were educated in this country. And we somehow decided we didn't want to didn't want to welcome them. And so we kept restricting the H-1B visa visas. And so now there's a Silicon Valley in India. There's now in China, they've got a Silicon Valley equivalent of it. And we used to, we used to, uh, you know, welcome these, these folks for this. So I think we have to, we have to reinvent the whole, uh, the whole visa program and the way we look at immigration. And we want to attract the, the best and the brightest to the country to help our, our tech sector. And, uh, you know, there were some instances where p companies were abusing the program, but by and large, it was a well-run program that really, really did help the tech sector. Now what we're doing, we're restricting the, the trained graduates from staying in the country, but we're welcoming the untrained people into the country with the open borders. And so we're attracting exactly the wrong uh, type of people to build the economy, not just in terms of education and that sort of thing. So I, I do think we have to revisit the whole H-1B visa program to try to make it more welcoming. And if you look at the statistics out in, uh, you know, of, of the of the startups, probably um, 60 to 70 percent of the startups were started by individuals who came from other countries to come here, like the CEO of uh, Microsoft is from India. <laughs> uh, Google was started by, by, uh, by, by two, two immigrants. Um, uh, even uh, Warren Buffett's number one uh, assistant in his investment uh, 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 company there is from India. You look at all of the startups over the last 20 years, we have a large block of people uh, from other countries that have come to this country to lead away. And I think we've got to accept the broad demographic deficit that we have. Our average age is 45. We cannot generate enough children to support the growth. So we have to find a way to, uh, you know, to reverse that trend. I mean, it's even worse in Europe. Their average age is 48. They're begging people to come to Europe. That's why they're giving away free uh, free programs. But what we're doing now is we're not, uh, I, I think we're not, uh, you know, supporting what used to be our eco engine for startups. 
because we're not encouraging people to come to the country. And there's another way to look at this, too. It's uh, not just about the demographic advantage, but also a competitive advantage. In other words, we worry about that we're giving away technology to, say, a country like China, which we regard as a rival. And uh, what what are we doing if we're sending back people who are from China? They've been educated here. They have this knowledge. They have this ability. They'd love to stay and actually create jobs and, and, and create new ideas. And we're sending them back to China to do that. That's right. And, and, and they would really, they would rather stay here. Look at what China is doing. They're, they're cracking down on the tech sector. So they would prefer to stay in this country if they could. I think that's exactly right. So we have, we have all the elements, but somehow the, uh, the um, politicians are not looking at global demographic trends. There, there's no way to say it. we're not producing enough children. Uh, to to support the future, and we have to, we have to integrate. We have to embrace immigration. I and I I think embracing immigration. First of all, if you've got a mixture of people from all different backgrounds, you've got a better mix for creativity, for innovation. You you, you I mean, there is something to be said about the melting pot. You bring people together from different backgrounds. They they tend to uh, create things that they wouldn't have created otherwise. You know, the so Claude I, Shannon story really ties into that for today because he, he was, you know, thinking in, in big terms and, and combining things from different disciplines. And this same thing can happen in, in collective groups that have, as you say, diverse people because they have diverse maybe um, outlooks on life in general and insights into life. And then they share that with each other in a way that they wouldn't do on their own. That's right. So I I, I think we have to remove this whole immigration thing from the political discourse, and just look at the facts and try to come up with policies that actually are, you know, are best for the country and best for the citizens. We should uh, support this H-1B reform program in order to, uh, in order to help the U.S. And, and I'll tell you, we, we certainly appreciate you listening to Tech Talk Radio because, uh, you know, you can go to the Stratford University website, look at our programs, uh, and tell them when you find a program that you like, tell them that you heard about that program on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.